Welcome back, Cramaholics. It's your host, Holly, and today's episode is going to be much like last week's episode. If you can't tell by just the sound of my voice, I am a little bit under the weather, and so I had such positive feedback on our last week's guest host episode that I asked Heather Ashley from Big Mad True Crime if I could use one of her episodes on our platform. If you're not familiar with who Heather Ashley is, she is an incredible human being, not only in the podcast world, but as a true friend to me. Heather has actually been a mentor to me through this last, probably I want to say year of podcasting. She reached out on Instagram and we just formed a connection and she is an incredible person with a wealth of knowledge and I am forever grateful for Heather. She's an incredible person. She's inspiring and she's so motivating in the podcast world. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic over to the Heather Ashley from Big Mad True Crime. And if you don't follow her on Facebook, on Instagram. You guys are missing out, but check the description of this episode because I will have all of her social medias linked. I also want to add that this episode Heather chose to share with everybody because it's one that many people are super fascinated about, and I cannot wait to hear your guys' reactions. So here we go. Here's Heather. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime, I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is out of Jacksonville, Florida. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Bonnie Haim was one of those women that was just easy to get along with. She was always smiling, easygoing, and was one of those people you just gravitate towards. She was married to Michael Haim and even worked with him. According to the Doe Network, they both worked for Michael's aunt's construction supply company. Michael was a manager and Bonnie worked in the accounts section. In 1989, the couple welcomed their son Aaron into the world and on the outside, their life seemed wonderful. They had steady jobs, a cozy little house on Dolphin Avenue, and now they were a family. But as we all know, appearances aren't always what they seem. By the end of 1992, Bonnie and Michael's marriage was at its breaking point. They were constantly arguing, and what were once seemingly normal marital problems took a violent turn. In an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Michael's aunt said that after an argument in the parking lot at work, Bonnie came in crying with her nails broken and saying that Michael had slammed her hand in the car door. Bonnie's sister echoed to News 4 Jax that Michael was indeed abusive. Bonnie was done at this point. She was done fighting and she wanted out. She told her friends and family that she was going to file for divorce and she started planning. News 4 Jax reports that Bonnie's first plan of action was to open her own bank account. She needed to save money to find a new place to live so whenever she did file for divorce, she had a place to go. But Michael found out. He was furious and forced her to close the account so she did. While that threw a wrench into her plan, it was just a speed bump. Without the bank account, the Denver Post reports that a couple of her friends became her savings accounts. She would give them cash to hold on to until she was ready to leave, and when the time came, she'd get it and get out. By early January of 1993, she had secretly stashed away $1,250. 
According to the outlet, Michael supposedly had a business trip scheduled for the end of that January, and when he left, that's when Bonnie was going to leave and she was going to take little Aaron with her. She put a deposit down on two different apartments. Why there were two, I don't know. But she had one foot out the door. She just needed Michael to leave. But she would never get that chance. On January 6th of 1993, Bonnie went to work as usual and, according to the Doe Network, got home around 7.30 p.m. that night. She was supposed to head over to Michael's aunt's house a half an hour later, but called her around 8.30 to tell her that she wouldn't be coming. The next morning rolled around and both Bonnie and Michael were no-shows. Michael told his aunt that he was sick, but he couldn't account for Bonnie because, according to him, she'd left the house around 11 p.m. the night before after an argument. That night, the outlet reports that an employee at the Jacksonville Airport's Red Roof Inn, six miles from their house, found a purse in the trash can. The employee actually wound up calling the police because it wasn't just some discarded purse someone didn't want anymore. It had a wallet, a checkbook, credit cards, and medication in it, all belonging to someone named Bonnie Haim. According to Jax4 News, it also had exactly $1,250 in it. No one throws away $1,250 in cash, so sheriff's deputies went to work trying to figure out where Bonnie was. And a few hours later, they found her car parked in the Jacksonville Airport's long-term parking lot. If her purse and car had been found in the opposite order or her purse had never been found at all, maybe everyone would have thought Bonnie just ran off without wanting to be found. But it's hard to catch a flight without your ID. And if you're going to run off, you're probably going to want to take any access to money that you have. The red flags were flying high and deputies contacted Michael to see if he knew where Bonnie might be. He told them the same thing, that Bonnie had driven off the night before after an argument, and according to the Denver Post, he even called his mom to come watch three-year-old Aaron while he went out and looked for his wife for a whole 45 minutes. Right off the bat, News 4 Jax reports that Michael became the prime suspect in Bonnie's disappearance. His story sounded like a hot bowl of bullshit, and it was way too convenient that he just so happened to be too sick to go to work the morning after but couldn't be bothered to report his own wife missing. In the following days, police searched everywhere for Bonnie, and according to a neighbor who spoke to the outlet, they even did some digging out on Dolphin Avenue, but they could never find her, or anything that pointed to what might have happened to her. Regardless of the lack of leads, the concern for their son Aaron's safety was apparent, and he was removed from the home and put into foster care, and the case went cold. In 1996, three years after her disappearance, Bonnie's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries. With national media attention, there was hope that maybe there would be some kind of movement in the case, but there was nothing. Detectives had one suspect in mind, but they just didn't have enough evidence to charge him. They get one shot at him in court, and if they go in without enough evidence to convict, there's no justice for Bonnie. In 1999, Bonnie was declared legally dead, and because of that, Michael was granted her life insurance money and hightailed it out of Florida. He kept the house, but he rented it out. With no plans of getting his son back and the courts not about to let that happen, his parental rights were officially terminated. 
Another five years went by with no movement in Bonnie's case until 15-year-old Aaron decided to do something about it. Aaron filed a wrongful death suit against his father, and it was at that hearing that we learned there was a whole lot more to this case than Bonnie just vanishing into thin air. The Florida Times Union reported on the evidence presented, which included a very distinct shoe print left in Bonnie's car at the airport, a shoe print that could only belong to the last person to drive it. The print was made of sand and plant debris, and it was an exact match to a pair of shoes Michael Haim owned that just so happened to have the same exact mixture of sand and plant debris still on the bottom of it. Also included in the hearing were statements Aaron had made to police and his caseworker after his mom disappeared. Statements like, Daddy shot mommy in the stomach. When asked what mommy was wearing, Katie Jeffries with First Coast News reports that Aaron said blood. He had even drawn pictures of his dad shooting his mom. Aaron's accounts of his mom's murder became clearer and clearer over time. And in 1995, while he was in the car driving over a bridge with his foster mom, News 4 Jacks report that he yelled, stop, stop, this is where daddy threw the gun. And lo and behold, when the sheriff's department searched the river, they found a sawed-off shotgun. The Florida Times Union reports that a marine biologist took a look at the gun and determined it had probably been in the river for about two years, which was the same amount of time Bonnie had been missing. By the end of this hearing, News 4 Jacks reports that the judge decided there was clear and convincing evidence that Michael had killed Bonnie. He was ordered to pay $15.3 million to his son and an additional $11 million to Bonnie's estate. By 2007, the family home that Aaron had once lived in with his mother and father and that his father had rented out was finally transferred into his name. Even though Michael had been found liable for Bonnie's murder in civil court, it wasn't criminal court, and the sheriff's department still didn't feel like they had enough to charge him, so time continued to tick by. The outlet reports that Aaron was eventually adopted by his foster family in 2009 when he was 20 years old, and he shed his father's last name and took on theirs. This case just got colder and colder and colder, and it seemed like Bonnie might never get justice until December of 2014. On December 14, 2014, initial reports said that a construction crew renovating the Haim family home found what they thought was a bone when they started taking out the pool in the backyard but that pool had been there since the home was built in 1959. It didn't sound right that there would be a body underneath of it, and if there was, it certainly couldn't have been Bonnie's. However, it wasn't construction workers who found the bone, and it wasn't found underneath the pool. It was Aaron who found it while he was breaking up a concrete pallet next to an outdoor shower in the backyard. Deputies rushed to the scene and confirmed that the bone found did indeed look human, so they called in an archaeologist, and according to Action News Jax, the state attorney even showed up. Dolphin Avenue was blocked off, and News 4 Jax was able to get some pictures where you could see tents up and investigators using sifters to go through the dirt as they excavated the yard. It was going to take days, but they were going to find every last bone in that yard. 
This is the point in Bonnie's case where everything started to unravel. News 4 Jax was able to get an interview with the guy who rented the Haim house back in the late 90s, and he told them that his rental agreement had some really strange rules. They couldn't touch Aaron's room. Yes, Aaron's room was still there years after he'd been put into foster care and after Michael had lost his parental rights and moved out of the state. It was there, and the person renting the whole ass house wasn't allowed to touch it. But there was another rule. He wasn't allowed to make any changes to the backyard. And I'm talking he wasn't even allowed to plant flowers. Seems suspicious, right? Well, even the renter's dog was suspicious. He told the outlet that after they moved in, their dog would run laps around the pool and just stop and start barking at the ground. He would do this by the shed, too. It was so weird that the renter remembered it more than a decade later. Michael was living in North Carolina at this point and presumably shitting his pants. There was no definitive news on whether or not the bones were human yet that would have to be determined by the medical examiner, and if they were human, the identification process would be another intensive undertaking. Extracting DNA from skeletal remains that have been exposed to the elements for 21 years and have no soft tissue remaining isn't a simple process, nor is it a quick one. I did some research, and according to an article on PubMed, it involves chemical and mechanical cleaning, cutting and powdering in the presence of liquid nitrogen, complete demineralization, and purification using magnetic beads. Basically, it's a whole lot of science that even when explained sounds like dictionary bingo and involves someone who could probably win Jeopardy. Two weeks went by until the medical examiner was able to confirm that the bones found were in fact human and the identification process began. Everyone knew the remains were going to be Bonnie's. I mean, what were the chances that someone else had been buried in her backyard after she went missing? But they had to be sure, so they waited and waited and waited. And in August, the results were in. The remains found in the backyard on Dolphin Avenue were, in fact, Bonnie's. But deputies didn't announce it right away. Instead, they called in the marshals to get an eye on Michael, who was living in North Carolina with his new wife. I can assume they held back the announcement because they wanted to nab that son of a bitch before he caught wind of the results, and nab that son of a bitch they did. On August 24, 2015, 22 years after Bonnie was murdered, her then-husband, Michael Haim, was finally arrested and charged with second-degree murder, meaning it wasn't premeditated, or at least they couldn't prove that. The following day, the sheriff's department held a press conference where they added in a few more details. They announced that along with Bonnie's remains, they'd also found a 22 caliber bullet in shell casing and that the medical examiner had determined that Bonnie had died as a result of homicide by unspecified means. It can be really difficult to determine a cause of death when you're dealing with solely skeletal remains. With bones that have broken and deteriorated over time, there's no soft tissue to show bruising, trauma, or something like a stab wound or a bullet hole. They may be able to find a bullet wound if it pierced through bone or blunt force trauma that broke a bone, but even then, because of the deterioration of the bones, it can be difficult to confirm that those are the causes of the damage they're seeing. 
With Michael finally charged after more than two decades, News 4 Jax was able to speak with the state's attorney who noted that while this case was going to be a circumstantial case, they absolutely planned to prosecute. And I think too often we don't give circumstantial evidence the credit it deserves. And frankly, I don't think that most of us realize what's considered circumstantial versus what's considered direct evidence. According to GRGB law, eyewitness testimony of someone committing a crime would be direct evidence, while eyewitness testimony of someone fleeing the scene of a crime would be considered circumstantial. Makes sense. But did you know that fingerprints are considered circumstantial? Because I was today years old when I found that out. A guilty verdict can absolutely be reached beyond a reasonable doubt on circumstantial evidence, and frankly, in a lot of the more well-known cases in the true crime community, the circumstantial evidence presented was some of the most convincing. Michael had his first scheduled hearing a few days after his arrest, but he waived it. According to the Florida Times Union, he was held without bond because he lived out of state and could be a flight risk. The following month, he pled not guilty. In December of 2015, Michael's attorney appealed his bond denial, and I shit you not, it worked. First Coast News reports that he was granted a $20,000 bond, and this guy bonded out. He owed his kid $26 million and somehow came up with what had to be between $20,000 and $30,000 at the drop of a hat. The terms of his bond were simple. He had to stay in Jacksonville, attend all of his hearings, and he couldn't have any contact with Bonnie's family. In October of 2016, as Michael's team was preparing for trial, they decided that they wanted to have Aaron's childhood witness statements thrown out. News 4 Jax reports that they wanted them thrown out because the day after Bonnie went missing, he had told detectives that his daddy had pushed mommy to the ground and run her over. They also noted that his competency was never established, and because of his age at the time, three, he probably didn't know the difference between right and wrong. Ironically, his age at the time is likely why his competency wasn't established. He was three. And while the statement about his daddy running his mommy over might have been his first account, when he told police that his daddy had shot mommy in the stomach and that she was wearing blood, that never wavered. Two months after trying to get the only eyewitness out of the trial, Michael decides that Jacksonville just isn't where he wants to be anymore, and his team petitions the court to allow him to move back to North Carolina until the trial. The judge denies it, but according to News 4 Jax, he was allowed to go back home for Christmas and the New Year. So Michael gets a good old family reunion holiday vacation while awaiting his trial for murder. And seven months later, the judge decides that he can move back to North Carolina so long as he attends all of his hearings. Dude has been charged with murdering his wife, was found liable for her murder in a wrongful death suit, lost custody of his son, moved out of state, wouldn't let renters so much as plant flowers in the backyard where his son later found the bones of his mother, and he was out walking the streets of North Carolina free to meander the grocery store and debate about whether or not he wanted soy milk or almond milk. What are rules? I don't know what rules are. Can someone tell me what rules are? It took two more years for Michael to finally stand trial. But on April 9th of 2019, it began. And it began with the testimony of his son. 
Aaron, who was now older than his mother was at the time of her murder, testified that when he was busting up the concrete pallet in the backyard shower, he hit something in a bag. He bent down and picked it up, thinking it was a coconut, and even wondered to himself, why would someone put a coconut in a bag? It wasn't until he bent down to take a look at what else was in the bag that he noticed teeth in the top of an eye socket. According to News 4 Jax, that is when Aaron realized he was holding the top of his mother's skull. And remember that time the defense tried to get Aaron's three-year-old testimony thrown out? Well, that didn't work. His caseworker took the stand and told the courtroom that Aaron had said, Daddy shot mommy, daddy couldn't wake her up. More specifically, we learned earlier in the case that Aaron had said daddy shot mommy in the stomach, and according to the medical examiner, Bonnie did have a circular injury to her pelvic bone that was consistent with a gunshot wound, which makes it even more suspicious that they'd found a 22 caliber bullet in shell casing with her remains. Aaron's discovery in the backyard wasn't the first indication that she might have been buried there. Sometime after Bonnie was killed, the sheriff's department received an anonymous letter telling them that Bonnie was buried there. Now, there's not much the police can do with an anonymous letter. You need more than the writings of a stranger to get probable cause for an excavation warrant. So Christy Turner from Action News Jax said they tried to get anything they could off of that letter. They ran it for fingerprints and DNA, but the only thing they could determine was that a male had licked the stamp. Thinking about this, you have to wonder who could have known this. Michael had maintained his innocence for more than 20 years, and if Aaron knew his mother was buried in the backyard, he would have excavated it himself. So who was this guy? There's one thing about this case that's bothered me from the beginning, and I haven't ever seen it addressed. Bonnie's purse was found at the Red Roof Inn, six miles from her house. Her car was found at the airport, three miles from the hotel, and the airport is another six and a half miles from the house. Michael and his mom both said that he left at 11 p.m. the night Bonnie disappeared and searched for her for 45 minutes. The round trip from the Hame home to the hotel to the airport and back home mapped out would take roughly 30 minutes. Take into account the fact that he'd need to find the trash can at the hotel and make sure no one was around so he could dump it, any traffic, and the process of getting into the long-term parking lot and finding a parking space, 45 minutes sounds about right. The issue here is how he got home. There's no way in hell this guy walked down the highway back to his house because that would take two hours. So again, how did he get home? There was no Uber back then, and sure, he could have called a cab, but how did he call for it? The only cell phones back then were the kind you saw on Saved by the Bell and were the size of a brick, if not a little bigger. And you couldn't just Google the cab's number or look for it saved in your phone. Which begs the question, did he have someone pick him up? And if he did, is that who sent this letter? Next on the stand was another person who rented the Hame home from Michael back in 2000. This renter who came after the tenant whose dog would scratch at the backyard by the pool in the shed and bark at the ground said that Michael had upped the suspicious rule ante. This renter was told that they couldn't so much as have a dog in the backyard. It sounds like the last dog might have spooked Michael a bit. But that's not even the best part of this testimony. The renters from 2000 said the house was haunted. 
According to News 4 Jax, they said that candles would light themselves and that one day their mattress was all of a sudden soaked with blood. But when they came back later, it wasn't. The blood was gone. I have no idea how this testimony was allowed in, but I am living for it. Two inmates who were in jail with Michael for the short amount of time he was actually in there testified that Michael had told them about how he choked his wife to death and that his son was mad at him. Now, the whole choking thing is new, but according to First Coast News, the forensic pathologist did find string when she unwrapped Bonnie's remains. On April 12th, the jury was sent out for deliberations, and in no fucking time, seriously, it took them 90 whole minutes, they found Michael Haim guilty of the second-degree murder of his 23-year-old wife, Bonnie Haim. They also found him guilty of three aggravating factors. The fact that the murder was committed in front of a family member, the fact that he tampered with evidence, and the fact that it inflicted severe emotional trauma to Aaron and other family members. Per the sentencing guidelines, Michael stood to receive 7 to 22 years in jail, and frankly, he could have even gotten out sooner with good behavior, but the judge in this case had other plans. Considering the aggravating factors, Michael Haim was sentenced to not seven years, not 22 years, not even 50 years. Michael Haim was sentenced to life in prison. The lead detective on Bonnie's case never gave up. Even after he retired, the Florida Times Union reports that he would come into the state's attorney's office and leave her a note reminding her to never forget about Bonnie. Because of that detective, Bonnie was never forgotten. Because of Aaron's bravery to speak out against his father, Bonnie got justice. And because of everyone working this case and a judge who wouldn't stand for what Michael not only did to his wife, but to his family, Michael Haim will spend the rest of his life in prison. For all photos pertaining to Bonnie's case, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about her case. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.